The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. And so we're in Matthew 5, and verse uh, began reading at verse 3 with these well-known Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you remember, we had suggested the possibility of a chiastic arrangement of these Beatitudes. If you have page 146, just to remind you of what we suggested, and this is only a suggestion, nothing that uh, obviously is said in, in any kind of concrete. The, the suggestion is that we have nine elements, and that gives four on each side of a center element, which is those who show mercy. And uh, we know that the message of mercy was a central message in the, in the teaching of our Master. And uh, particularly to those who he felt were uh, not showing mercy, like the leaders of, of the Pharisees, for instance. But if, if our suggestion has warrant, then those poor in spirit are paralleled to those who are persecuted as disciples of Yeshua. And those who mourn are paralleled by those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who are gentle are paralleled by those who are peacemakers. Those who hunger and thirst are par- after righteousness are paralleled by those who are pure in heart. And this leaves us the center and maybe the most, uh, shall we say, emphatic part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who show mercy, for they will sh- be shown mercy. And so, you know, I, I've, I, as I've studied through this, I think... I'm liking that more and more rather than less and less. There's one, there's one kind of caveat which we'll reach tonight and we'll see that. But let's start on page 155 with verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's interesting, by the way, just, it doesn't have anything really to do with the text, but the word in Hebrew for pure is, is bar, this exact same consonants as the Aramaic word for son. And so it's, it's interesting that in Psalm Two, it says, "Kiss the sun," and the rabbis aren't real happy with that, what they believe to be Christian interpretation, and and uh, try to interpret that as bar meaning pure. But at any rate, we have pure in heart here. What does it mean to be pure in heart? I think we all have a sense of that without even thinking about it. I mean, what's the opposite of pure in heart? Impure, right? Okay, so what would that be? Well, it's an admixture. It's something that is. Uh, not what it should be. And, and as we'll see, the, the word pure 
in the Greek, which is katharos, is almost always the word that is used to translate tehorah in the Hebrew, that is the word that means ritually pure, ceremonially clean, or an animal that is going to be used for sacrifice has to be a, an unblemished, a pure animal. So without admixture, when I was in college, uh, I was a philosopher, well, I had a double major, philosophy and music, and uh, I, I enjoyed philosophy. I, I, I really liked it. And we, uh, I took one course on existentialists, and we studied Sartre and, and uh, Kierkegaard and Heidegger and some of these uh, existential philosophers. And I liked Kierkegaard the best, even though uh, I remember one night at a Bible study, the pastor of the church that we were attending at that time saw me with Kierkegaard and took me aside <laughs> and, and, and in gentleness, but with some sternness, warned me about not being uh, uh, de- deceived by vain philosophy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I told him thanks. Uh, and Kierkegaard has a lot of misgivings. If any of you have read Kierkegaard, you know that his life was marred at a point because he was engaged to be married and then was jilted by the lady who, or that, that was how he saw it at least. And that put him into a lifelong melancholy, which some people think uh, colored most of his works. But in that melancholy, he did, he did deal with the angst of life a bit. And he wrote one book, and the title itself tells you about it. And, it said, and the title of the book is, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And uh, he actually, it actually is a, uh, an exposition of James, which a verse that we'll look at uh, briefly. So purity of heart is to be single-hearted. How can you be single-hearted? You, the only way you can be single-hearted, if you just stop to think about this, the only way you can be single-hearted is from a Hebrew perspective of the unity of life. You can't have a secular part and a sacred part. You can't have a dualism in which you say, well, what is right in the sacred area may not be right in the secular area, but what's right in the secular area may not be right in the sacred area. You're you're double-hearted. To will one thing is to will God's will in everything, in everything. And that's the Hebrew perspective. Uh, That's the Torah perspective that all of life revolves around your covenant relationship with God, what you wear, what you eat, your calendar, uh, you know how you plant your crops, when you plant your crops, what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you, what you're supposed to do when your neighbor's cow gets out. I mean, all of them, you know, even what you're supposed to do when you're camping and you don't have any convenient uh, restrooms. The Torah, the Torah talks to us about all aspects of life. And in that regard, the Torah gives us the opportunity to be pure in heart. One of the great uh, d- demise, in my opinion, uh, that Christianity brought to us was a dualism that offered two compartments of life. And of course, uh, Immanuel Kant and some others uh, helped us feel very good about that. So when you study those philosophers, you understand kind of how we got where we are. Well, this, this sixth the beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm suggesting that any one of us are entirely pure in heart. 
I don't think any of us could ever say that our motivations on anything are 100% pure. We're too, we're too taken over by our uh, mortality. Even though we do our best to, to be 100% motivated with, uh, with the righteousness in a given decision or area, we are never absolutely sure if there isn't some part of pride or some part of selfishness that is in that motivation. Yeah. Okay, the question is, uh, how do we uh, balance that out with the uh, love your neighbor as yourself, which is, of course, a quote from Leviticus 19. Um, <clears throat> yes, love your neighbor as yourself. It, it's, I think it's quite sim- simplistic, not, in, not, hi- not that his words aren't deep and full of meaning. They are. But I don't think we have to search too far to figure out at least the basic meaning of that. Um, you know, would you, how would you go about nurturing that which belongs to you in that same way you're to love your neighbor? And someone who said, well, you have to have self-love before you can love your neighbor then. That's not exactly what he's saying. You, you are very careful when you're hammering that you keep your thumb out of the way. And, you, you know, you don't have to stop to have a, uh, a session in, in uh, self-realization to keep your thumb out of the way of the hammer. That, that's part of a natural, that's part of a natural uh, response, right? Yeah. See what I'm saying? <laughs> so that ought to be our natural response towards our neighbor too. In other words, we ought, to, we ought to care for our neighbor in the same kind of natural response that we would care for ourselves. We should not seek his hurt and we should not long for his demise. We should seek to, to, uh, to treat him as... We care for ourselves. Do unto others is the positive way of saying it, as you would have them do to you. The negative uh, was given by Hillel and, and is also, by the way, in Acts 15 in some of the texts. Uh, what you don't want others to do to you, don't do to them. It's just the negative way of saying the positive so-called golden rule. So I think that's to be pure in heart. But you're right in asking the question, if you mean by that, that, it, that we never are able to entirely keep that balance where, you know, as we've, we've talked before, you roll up to the stop sign and the guy's there with, or, you, you know, there's gals out there too, say, you know, homeless, don't have any food to eat, please help. Okay, what do you do? So you're, you're in that dilemma again of purity of heart. I don't want to enable them to continue to be in a, a lifestyle that is godless. On the other hand, they're hungry. How do I... How do I balance these things? And that's part of what I mean when I say we can't point fingers at each other or even at ourselves and say, why aren't you pure in heart? All of us are striving to be pure in heart, and that's the goal. So what, what else can we say about this phrase? Well, first of all, there's no parallel in Luke. And, I, and it, it seems to me more and more clear that Matthew is preserving a structure of the Beatitudes, so he wants all of them. Luke picks those that are germane to his particular argument. As I said, if our chiastic arrangement is proper, then blessed are the pure in heart is parallel to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. To be pure in heart is to will one thing, which is what? God's righteousness, His way, His thoughts. And uh, this helps us to understand what pure means. It's inner purity, which is the fountain from which righteous deeds flow. And as I said, the Greek term is regularly translating the Hebrew word which means which denotes ritual or ceremonial purity. It would seem most likely that our master used this word in his teaching here and by doing so combined both the sense of inner purity and the outward obedience to God's instructions or Torah. 
In other words, I don't think uh, Yeshua was speaking Greek. I think he was speaking probably Hebrew, maybe Aramaic. And so he would have used the word tahor, tahorah. Now, it seems that the parallel in Psalm 24, 3 through 6 is, uh, I think Yeshua must have this in mind, which reads, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Same uh, Septuagint word, the Greek word is used in the Septuagint. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from Adonai and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So you see why I think my parallel uh, is even strengthened here. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? According to the psalm, they will receive righteousness, which is parallel in our text to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. The side note there I'll just point out, if you look in the Hebrew of Psalm uh, 24, the Hebrew actually has my soul, not his soul. Who has He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up my soul to falsehood. Now, most uh, modern scholars think that's just an error in the Hebrew text because yods and vavs are sometimes interchanged. And we know, for instance, in the Qumran Hebrew, uh, the vav, in some of the manuscripts, particularly one hand that, uh, I forget which one I was reading, the vavs and, and the yods are almost indistinguishable. They're almost the same length and they look the same and everything. So you could see why there might have been a mix-up. But I would like to, I, I think... I think my soul is correct. The work that I did on it, uh, all of the major manuscripts have my soul. So what would that mean then? And in the side margin I've said, I've suggested, who has not sworn in vain by my soul, meaning who has not evoked the divine name in a false oath, who hasn't lifted his soul, who hasn't lifted his hand in an oath using my soul, that is God's soul, by the life of God, I make this, I swear this to be true. Yeah, I think that's, you know, what, what the psalmist is saying. Who has not lifted up my soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. So when you're in the court before the judges and you, you swear something to be true, you're doing it as God is your witness. So it, you're taking this oath on, on the basis of his being, on his soul. The Septuagint, of course, translated it his soul, which is where our English translations uh, got it. In this context, purity of heart is manifest in proper oath-taking, where to lift one's soul to falsehood is further defined in the parallelism by swearing deceitfully. Moreover, the fact that the reward for the pure of heart is that they will receive righteousness strengthens the suggestion that this beatitude is parallel to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the heart in the Hebrew perspective? It's not primarily the seat of emotions like it is in our culture. It is the place where we make decisions. It's also the place where we, shall we say, meet the divine. When we have a sense of God's presence with us, from the Hebrew perspective, you have that sense in your heart. That's how the Hebrew would speak. The idea of purity in heart thus involves both an inward conformity to God's ways as well as concomitant actions that inevitably proceed from one's inner self. The two can never be divided, as though uh, one could be pure in actions without first being pure in heart. Thus, singleness of heart is another way of describing an utter lack of hypocrisy. Those who are double-minded, it's a different Hebrew word, se'ef, are contrasted to those who love the Torah. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your Torah. So the two are 
opposite to each other. James, who doubtlessly has Psalm 24, 3-4 in mind, admonishes, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here, James gives us a bit of a divine commentary on what it means to have a pure heart. It means not to be double-hearted. And we all struggle with this, don't we? I mean, I, I do. Are my deepest, are my desires, you know, is my happiness entirely laid upon God and who He is? Do I ever get tired of being satisfied with Him? <laughs> That's another way to say it. And, you know, can I see all of my life, all of my life, revolving around Him? Now, some might say, well, Tim, are you talking about like a monastic uh, uh, life? No, I'm not. That's a Greek way of thinking of things. That everything materialistic and everything uh, in this world is somehow other than what can honor God. But that's not the biblical view at all. You know, when we're having fun, when we're having entertainment, when we're doing those things with family, when we're on vacation, when we're having just a great time, when we're gathered together for fun uh, kinds of events, when we're together for not-so-fun events. All of those things revolve around our covenant relationship with God. So draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the verse that Kierkegaard tries to unravel in his book, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. I, I don't necessarily recommend it, his conclusions, but it's an interesting title nonetheless. Matthew emphasizes this theme in, in other places of his gospel as well. In the sermon itself, later on, our master teaches us that the sin of adultery begins in the heart and the hypocrisy of the Pharisaic leaders is pictured as a cup that is clean outwardly but inside is full of impurities. In other words, what matters is what goes on in the heart because the heart governs all of one's actions. The, you know, Solomon uh, admonishes in Proverbs, take heed to your heart Watch over your heart and guard it, for out of your heart proceed the issues of life. And that's what Yeshua is saying. The blessing promised to those who are pure in heart is that, quote, they will see God. These words strike us as strange, don't they? For the Scriptures teach us that God is a spirit and therefore invisible to the human eye. I mean, John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time, right? Uh, John 4.24 says God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Colossians 1.15 talks about the invisible God, and so does 1 Timothy 1.17. Moreover, God instructed Moses that, quote, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. We read, however, similar language about seeing God in Exodus 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. The Septuagint translators were not comfortable with such straightforward language. And so they translated the verse, and they saw the place where the God of Israel stood. But this translation betrays a theological position. The Hebrew text is very clear. They saw the God of Israel. You know, this is something that happens in the Bible when you compare it with systematic theology. The Bible tends to uh, cause systematic theologians to rankle because it's not systematic. You know, in one place it says they saw the God of Israel, and in another place it says no one can see God and live. And so, for a systematic theologian, those have to be reconciled. Those cannot stand side by side without having some explanation. Okay, well, um, get used to disappointment because uh, there's not always good explanations for those kinds of apparent contradictions. 
The rabbis had similar difficulty with Exodus 24 text. Targum Onkelos reads, and they saw the glory of the God of Israel, meaning they saw the Shekinah. Likewise, the phrase, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness, found in Psalm 17:15, is interpreted to mean one is worthy to behold the Shekinah. We read this in Talmud Bava Batra 10a. If a man gives but a farthing to a beggar, he is deemed worthy to receive the divine presence. As it is written, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And, of course, the word righteousness is zedekah, right? And so how do the rabbis interpret zedekah? Giving something to the poor, right? That's how they got this if you give a farthing to, to a beggar. I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. The scriptures tell us the angels see the face of God. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that an amazing verse? Every one of those little children, apparently, as, as our Master teaches us, has an angel who's looking after. And these angels are constantly looking at the face of God. Moreover, the idea that God will be seen is found in connection to the eschatological redemption and renewal. In Revelation 22 we read, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will ser serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. In this text, the one who is seen is the one whose name is written on their foreheads, and this surely alludes to the divine name written on the crown of the high priest, Kodesh la Adonai, holy to the Lord. So it's yod heh vav -Heh that they see, because His name is on their forehead. Indeed, this sense of seeing God in the eschaton is referenced in the Talmud in connection to the interpretation of Exodus 24.10. A favorite saying of Rob was, The future world is not like this world. In the future world there is no eating, nor drinking, nor propagation, nor business, nor jealousy, nor hatred, nor competition. But the righteous sit with their crowns on their heads, feasting on the brightness of the divine presence, as it says, And they beheld God and did eat and drink. Well, what does it mean, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God? It surely is true that the verb to see may also mean to know. See what I mean? See can mean to know. Right? Some have suggested that this is the meaning of our beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall know God. And this is, of course, true. But the language that utilizes the verb to see intends that we understand this knowledge of God as that which comes through close association. For the Gospel writers, this knowledge of God has come to its fulfillment in the person of the Messiah. He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14.9 Ultimately then, the blessing attached to those who are pure in heart is that they will come to know God, that is to see Him as He truly is, as perfectly and completely revealed in His Son, Yeshua. And this revelation of the Father is not inferior to knowing the Father directly. Yeshua is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of his nature. I can remember when I was a young boy being quite disappointed when I finally got it straight that I was never going to see God the Father. You know, my father, my dad, finally got it through me that no, God the Father is a spirit. You can't see him. He's invisible. And he showed me the verses in John 1, 18 and other places. And I, I was somewhat disappointed. I was looking forward to seeing God. And then he, he, told, he taught me that You'll, you'll have no disappointment because Yeshua is the full, complete, not inferior at all, representation of the Father. And that is what he means when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, you 
should come to know me. I am the one, he said, who came to reveal the Father. And the book of Hebrews tells us he did it perfectly. So Yeshua is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So we won't be disappointed at all. <laughs> we indeed know the Father and are known by the Father, and we will know him even better, for we shall see him as he is. Right? All right. Next beatitude. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. It's, it's, we're, some of us are better at it than others. But we all need to be peacemakers. We all need to have this as one of our goals, to be peacemakers. The, the Greek word that is used, peacemakers, uh, indicates that these are those who work for reconciliation, who seek to bring about peace where it is lacking. The word which is found only here in the Apostolic Scriptures is not found ever in the Septuagint. So we're, we don't have a lot of examples to help us understand. It is, however, a compound word made up of the word for peace, irene, and the verb to make, poeo. So it literally means to make peace. Those who make peace. It does not connote a pacifist or simply the sense of peace. It, it doesn't say blessed are those who are peaceable. It, it says blessed are those who make peace which presumes that they come to a place where there isn't peace and they work to bring about peace. Just so you know where I stand on this issue, I think, uh, I think our military forces are peacemakers in, a, in, in numbers, of, numbers of times. Not always, but in, a, in a numbers of times, I think our military forces are peacemakers. Peacemakers are those who love their enemies and seek to reconcile their differences, according to Yeshua. Even where such reconciliation is elusive, peacemakers refuse to heighten the discord. They do not throw fuel on the fire. As James writes, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In fact, I think maybe I've said this before, but it bears repeating. I think the whole book of James, or the epistle of James, is a commentary on the Beatitudes. If you take the Beatitudes and look at the book of James, it's almost as though he is writing a commentary on the Beatitudes, or at least on the Sermon on the Mount, if, if not just on the Beatitudes. Now, since Adonai is the source of peace, we, we say all the time, Ose Shalom Bimromav, right? He who is the maker of peace in the heights. Since Adonai is the source of peace, and since he is the one who ultimately brings peace to his people, <clears throat> those who likewise are peacemakers are known as his sons, for they follow in the footsteps of their father. Yeah. Uh, the question was, is the James uh, who wrote the epistle the brother of Messiah? And yes, there are those who would dispute that, but that's, the, that's at least one, one view, and I think it's the right view. There are numbers of James that show up, so th there is a, a valid uh, reason for question. But, but this does not imply peace at any cost. Yeshua himself said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. So my question to you, is Yeshua a peacemaker? <laughs> it... it we would have to say he's quite a hypocrite if on the one hand he commands his followers to be peacemakers or tells them that there will be a blessing for them if they are when in his own example he is not a peacemaker. And yet he says right here, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. How do we reconcile that? Ultimately he is the prince of peace and it is through his power to reign as king over all the earth that he will bring about a final and lasting peace. But peace is the fruit of righteousness, not that which results from a miscarriage of justice. 
As the prophet Zechariah teaches us, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge the truth and judgment for peace in your gates. You want peace in your gates? You have to speak the truth. You have to judge correctly. You can't have peace otherwise. You can have a false sense of peace. But that's not what Yeshua is talking about. In our world, it is common to hear of peace as an entity unto itself. But true peace is always the result of justice and righteousness. There is no peace for the wicked, says Adonai. Right? The parallel to our beatitude in the chiastic scheme we have proposed is that of the gentle or meek. Peacemakers are those who are willing to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and await His verdict. Instead of seeking retaliation against their opponents, they rather seek avenues of reconciliation and peace. As the psalmist admonishes, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue after it. Hallel was known for teaching the same message. He said, be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving your fellow creatures and bringing them near to the Torah. In fact, we could spend an awful lot of time paralleling the words of Yeshua with the uh, sages in these Beatitudes. These are very, very much the, the stock and work of, of the rabbis as well. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. The question is, has been asked, essentially I can say it this way, who is our enemy? Because it's, if, if Yeshua says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you, does that mean Osama bin Laden? You know, Does that mean the terrorist that's going to come and, and uh, blow himself up at the mall? And those kinds of things. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, one's enemy is someone within your community. Now, Yeshua may have extended the boundaries of the community. He certainly did in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because the Jewish community would not have considered the Samaritans to be within the circle of their self-identity. They would have seen the Samaritan as other, just like they saw the Gentile as other. Yeshua clearly ex extended the boundaries more than his contemporaries. But I have no sense at all that when he said, love your enemies, he meant uh, give your back to the Roman sword. Or, uh, or that somehow he was, uh, he was a thoroughgoing pacifist. You know, he said, I didn't, I, didn't mean, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I, can, I don't think that there's any, how should I say this, there's no disparity between the view of the Father and the view of the Son. The God who told Israel to go in and wipe out the, uh, her enemies in, in the land of Canaan is the same God who came incarnate in His Son. So I don't have any... I, I don't think there's a disparity there like, the, like so many of the liberals have said that the God of the so-called Old Testament is one way and, 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 and the God of the New Testament or Jesus is another way. That makes, that makes no sense theologically or, or biblically. So when he says love your enemies, well, how does he go on to, def to define that? Pray for those who despitefully use you. Who would that be? 
Well, we're going to we're coming up to uh, the end of these beatitudes, and at the the last the last one, the ninth one, he says, you know, you are blessed if people insult you, you know, if they uh, persecute you, if they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Those are your enemies. Those are the ones who are uh, kicking you out of the synagogue because of me. Those are the ones who are saying that you're a blasphemer because you uh, follow this Yeshua of Nazareth. Those, those are the ones who are presenting themselves as your enemy. So I, I, think any, I think any husband who doesn't guard a wife physically from harm is disobeying God. And if someone comes to harm my wife or anyone in my family or anyone that, that is under my charge... Um, I will do all I can in the righteousness of God to subdue him, uh, whatever force, even lethal force, that would be needed. And I think that's that's uh, certainly within the realm of what uh, what God intends. So when He says love your enemies, He's talking about those that are that are within your community or your your larger circle. Now, where would that be for us? You know, we can't draw that circle just tight enough to our congregation. No, that means when. Someone uh, writes a a not so kind a rebuke of us on the internet and spreads it all over. Uh, we're not in, we we don't have the right to retaliate. We're supposed to pray for that person. We're supposed to do kind deeds for that person. We're supposed to hope that that person succeeds in righteousness. Maybe we can pray that they would stop the unrighteousness. But in other words, we're not permitted to wage war against that person. We're to love them and show them that love. Uh, we're not allowed to engage in lashon hara or gossip against someone who is gossiping against us, even if they won't talk with us, even if they won't come and reconcile with us. We're not allowed to do that. We're supposed to do good deeds for that person. We're supposed to bless them as best we can. Karen. Well, let let me summarize that for those who are, will be listening. Um, the point is being made that the love your enemies uh, is said by our master in the context of a cohesive community who had agreed who found their cohesiveness within a, a, a covenant law code given to them by God. And whether they uh, uh, adhered to it perfectly or not, it still was, in general, that which, which wed them together. And as you said, they, they didn't have uh, neighbors doing meth and et cetera, et cetera. So here we are in our society, and you know, how can we apply this? Well, I, I know that in one sense we all must see ourselves as part of this larger society. But to be frank with you, I don't see myself very clearly in that regard. I see myself as very much a subculture, you know, a culture within a culture, and frankly, a quite small culture within the culture. I mean, my, uh, and this is my fault, not theirs, but my family is almost doesn't want me to go shopping with them anymore because I embarrass them. You know, I went into a store. I, I decided that I needed to go shopping with my daughters because I wanted them. I wanted them to see my point of view in terms of the clothes that they wanted to buy. Not that they're trying to do something wrong, but just the, the whole fashion thing. And I walked into this one store. You know, of all things, is the last time we. I've been at the mall at least. This was some time ago, but um, we walked into a store in the mall. And, and, and the mannequin was there, and, a, and she had a shirt on, and across this shirt was blasphemy, sexual and religious blasphemy. And I went up to the counter, and I said, could I talk to the manager? And both of my daughters are heading for the door. They went out of there. And I was so steaming hot that I, I calmed down, and, and the manager came, and I said, 
what is this? And, and, and she looked at me and said, what? I said, well, are you promoting this? Is this what you're promoting? Why do you talk about my God that way? So, and she said, well, we're sorry if we offended you. I said, no, you're not sorry if you offended me. If you're sorry that you offended me, you would take that, that shirt off of the racks and never sell it again. She said, well, I'm just the manager. I'm not the owner. I said, could I have the owner's name? She gave me the card. I called him. I left message after message after message. Of course, I got no calls back. But, you know, I realize more and more that wherever we are, we are a subculture. We do not fit into this culture. I, I don't identify with it at all. And, and some would say, well, you've checked out, and that's why, that's why it is the way it is. Okay, well, maybe you have, a, you have a point there. I think it is time for us to band together in communities and see ourselves as a subculture. But that is not easy. That's to go against the grain and to go against the current, and it requires great chutzpah and stick to and a lot of spiritual courage because it is not easy, and it's definitely not easy to raise children uh, in, in, that, in that atmosphere. You see, the society has moved so fast and so quickly that we are in this downward spiral. Yeah, uh, the question is, it is, uh, is it standard teaching amongst modern Orthodox or Judaism that one of the distinctions between Christianity and Judaism is that Yeshua taught to love your enemies, which is not found anywhere in the Tanakh. But this is not true. In Leviticus, it tells us that if you see your, if you see your enemy whose donkey is overloaded or the load has fallen off, you are obligated to stop and help him. It even uses that terminology. So it doesn't come right out and say love your enemy, but it certainly does say uh, that you're to help your enemy. And it shows you an example, which is the way the Hebrew works. Now, it is true in chapter 5, as we go along here, Yeshua is going to say, you have heard it said, love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so there were those who were teaching that. That is true. In the rabbinic theology, there was a sense in which uh, one's uh, someone outside of the community, an idolater, was treated with an, a different scale of justice than someone within the community. Uh, the comments being made, so Jonah would be uh, justified for the hatred he, he, he apparently had against the uh, people of Nineveh. Well, yeah, there's a slightly different thing going on there, too. Remember... The Assyrians uh, were known for being so ruthless and were uh, an arch enemy of Israel. And it wasn't very many years later that they came and wiped Israel out. So it would be similar to someone, call, uh, you know, God telling you to go over to, uh, uh, I don't know, somewhere where Al-Qaeda is, is holed up and uh, to tell them, look, good news, um, if you repent, everything's going to be fine. And you would say, I don't want Osama bin Laden to repent. I want him to burn in hell. So I mean, there, there was more. There was a political thing going on as well than just uh, just enemy per se or outsider. Verse ten: Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Once again, this beatitude finds no parallel in Luke. Some have suggested that it was added by Matthew for structural purposes. Perhaps this is so, but it does not mean that Matthew added this beatitude to the words of our master, the word our master taught. Rather, if structural concerns are at work here, it is because Matthew saw in our master's teaching a pattern he wished to emphasize. In the chiastic arrangement we have suggested, the central beatitude is that of mercy, which parallels a significant theme throughout the gospel. And thus this beatitude, which focuses on those who have been persecuted for righteousness, is parallel to those 
who mourn. Persecution refers to physical as well as verbal abuse. At least that's what diokum, uh, the, the Greek word, would indicate. And I think the same would be true of words relative to that in the Hebrew. In our verse, the verb is in the perfect tense, which would suggest both past persecution and that which is ongoing in the present. So the English Standard Version has, blessed are those who are persecuted, not who have been or were. Thus, the persecution here envisioned is not confined to the current time of Yeshua's teaching, but is broadened to include any form of persecution that came as a result of doing righteousness. We, we talked about this last time we met. It's not far-fetched to think that you could be persecuted for doing righteousness. Anybody, any, any of us who have worked in the workaday world know that when you, when you uh, live righteously, it's not the common thing. I mean, I can remember when I was at West Coast Grocery, when I was uh, in, in seminary, there was a move afoot to, uh, there was one of the foremen that every, everybody hated. Well, he was hateable, okay? I mean, it was, he, he deserved a lot of what he got. But they were doing everything they could to undermine him and make the shift bad and make him look bad because they wanted to get him fired. And if you didn't go along with it, you were not appreciated. You know, and there were, there were enough of us from the seminary who shook our heads and said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, that it wasn't as difficult. But if you were standing by yourself, you would have definitely been persecuted for righteousness sake in that place. In fact, it wouldn't have surprised me that some of us would have lost our jobs because this, the, the union stu uh, shop steward was uh, very much wanting this foreman fired. And he often got what he wanted. So at any rate, that just, that's just an illustration. Persecution for righteousness. Thus, um, the cause of persecution here, however, is specific for the sake of righteousness. Some have suggested that the Greek word which, uh, which is translated because of or for the sake of should be understood as simply identifying those who are persecuted. Thus, blessed are the persecuted righteous ones. But the more natural way to understand the Greek is that righteousness is the cause for the persecution. Moreover, this accords with the close parallel in 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And here the Greek is, is unambiguous. The persecution is on account of righteousness. Did Peter have access to the Matthew Beatitudes? This is so close that you almost wonder. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. In other words, blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake, or persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or did he have uh, access to the source that Matthew himself used? It's impossible to know, but the parallel, even if not verbally identical, is remarkably close. And in the context of Peter's epistle, the persecution is specifically upon those who are followers of Yeshua. For the next verses read, But sanctify Messiah as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Messiah will be put to shame. You know, we've, we always were taught this verse means be ready to give a testimony for the Lord. Well, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's true. That we should do that. But in the context, it probably was get ready to give your account of your faith as you're being uh, put to death or as you're being put into prison. In other words, there are going to be those who slander you in court. They're going to be false witnesses against you. Okay, how are you going to handle that? And are you going to be able to stand firm and give an account for your faith before those who are going to persecute you? I remember the. Uh, some of the Russian families that we sponsored, 
told us that it was they had made a rule amongst the, some of the churches that these people were in in former Soviet Union that they would not baptize a person until they were, was it 18, 18 years old. I said, why not? So, you know, if you have a 12-year-old that, that comes to the Lord, why don't you baptize? He says, because they have to be strong enough to withstand prison. It's, it, you know, as soon as they get baptized, if it gets out, they're going to be put in prison. How would you like to know as you went into the waters of the mikveh that probably what awaited you was a prison cell for a certain amount of time? <laughs> you know, would you be willing? Would you be able to stand and give an account of what you believed and why? And you know, maybe that's why their their faith was so strong there. We may presume then that our master's primary focus is likewise upon those of his followers who were presently being slandered and who would endure the increased persecution that would come upon them at the hands of his enemies. We should not confuse the calamity that comes upon us as a result of our own failings with the persecution that results from righteous living. You know, when, you're, when your engine blows up, it's not because you're being persecuted. You know, When you fall down the steps and break your leg, you can't, you can't say, well, I'm really blessed because I'm under persecution. When we suffer various hardships, it is easy to reason that we are being persecuted and that our suffering is, not, is no fault of our own. But often, if we reflect more sincerely, many of the hardships we endure are, in some measure, either the result of our own bad choices or the inevitable consequences of living in a fallen world. You know? I mean, stuff just does happen in a fallen world. That's just the, that's just the way it is. It is not uncommon to find the victim mentality alive and well among those who are religious. Well, none of us are victims. We're all blessed. What is the blessing for those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promised blessing upon those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness is the same as in the first beatitude. And thus it forms an inclusio, framing the first eight. Inclusio is just a Latin word meaning something that makes an inclusion. Okay? So if you want to use bookends, that's even okay. The first one is what? Blessed or... The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now we have this eighth one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same blessing. So it, sound, it looks like bookends on eight of the Beatitudes. The final Beatitude has a far different structure and therefore most likely acts as a bridge between the Beatitudes and the remainder of our Master's teaching in this pericope. It still figures into the overall structure of the Beatitudes, but does double duty as a bridge to the next. And why is it so different? Well, because it changes from third person to second person. All these have been third person. We'll talk about that in a minute. As such, the promise of the kingdom of heaven frames the eight Beatitudes that are cast in the third person. The final Beatitude switches to the second person, blessed are you, rather than blessed are they. The force of this inclusio is to teach that all of the Beatitudes essentially promise the same blessing. You begin with the blessing, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You end with the blessing, kingdom of heaven. So what is that? Well, possession of the kingdom of heaven is citizenship under the reign of God. And all of the attended blessings that come as a result, such blessings await their fuller realization in the eschatological reign of the Messiah, but they are nonetheless enjoyed in part now, for the king has come and the future has invaded the present. Okay, so essentially now... And you'll see in commentaries and in some Bibles, you'll see that they break the paragraph here and put verses 11, 12 for the next paragraph. It does form a bridge to what Yeshua is going to teach in verses 13 and following. Verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
Luke's parallel includes four aspects of persecution. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Matthew has only three, to insult, to persecute, to slander. But I think they're saying essentially the same thing. If we understand Matthew's persecute to mean drive away, then it may be parallel to Luke's ostracize you. Further, Luke's opening item, men hate you, may be a general heading which is then explained by the following three terms. So what Luke could mean is, blessed are, men, are you when men hate you. And here's what I mean by that. When they ostracize you, when they insult you, when they scorn your name evilly. Okay, so he really has three. He uses hate you as a heading. In essence, then, the two are essentially saying the same things. The change to the second person, blessed uh, the, from the third person, blessed are they, that is, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they, so forth and so forth. But here we have blessed are you. <clears throat> it's curious and numbers of explanations have been offered. But it seems very probable to me that the v previous Beatitudes were directed to the general public who had gathered to hear our Master's teaching while this final beatitude is directed specifically to his disciples. So he's talking to the large crowd, and now he turns, I'm speculating this, but now he turns to, his twelve, to the twelve who are gathered around him, and he says, now, I have something just for you. All of the previous beatitudes applied to them as well, but this final one has the persecution they would inevitably endure in view. You know, when you read this beatitude, you think, thanks but no thanks. Oh man, I'm really blessed. I'm gonna, it's going to be persecuted to death. I'm going to have plenty of rejoicing. Persecution is going to be so hot and heavy. That doesn't quite fit, does it? It's hard to get excited about that, at least at first. This also makes sense with the analogy of the persecution of the prophets. In the same way that the prophets of old came to Israel with the words of the Almighty and were often rebuffed by the people, so the disciples who would carry the message of Yeshua would meet with a similarly hostile reception. Moreover, it was the prophets' faithfulness to the message they had received that resulted in their persecution, and the same would be experienced by the apostles of our Master. You know, how quickly would you be willing to change your message just slightly if you knew you were going to be beaten for it? You know, don't you love that, that story of Jeremiah? You know, he comes into the king, and the king says, Now, Jeremiah, tell me again, uh, uh, what are you saying about my enemies? You know, and Jeremiah says, Well, thus says the Lord, enemies are going to come and take you away and wipe you out. And what does he do? Tells his servant, throw this prophet in the, in the well out there. Of course, the well didn't have water in it. Fortunate for Jeremiah's sake. But it had mud, and he sinks up to mud in his, to his knees, right? <clears throat> Evid Melik comes along and ties together the rags that he finds from the priestly garments that couldn't be uh, destroyed. Lowers them down. He puts it underneath his, his arm, pulls him up. <clears throat> says, king wants to see you now. And he goes in, and the king essentially says, this, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. He says, no. Jeremiah, what is your message from the Lord? And Jeremiah points his bony finger at him and says, <laughs> you know, your enemy's going to come and put hooks in your nose and lead you away to, you know. In other words, Jeremiah, the crying prophet, was faithful to the word that God had given him. At, his, at personal cost. The apostles would be the same. They also would carry this message of Yeshua at the cost of their own lives. This parallel to the prophets is all the more interesting when it is understood that the opening line lacks a specific subject. The NASB, NIV, and New RSV apply the word, uh, supply the word people. ESV has the word others. KJV and RSV have the word men. Blessed are you when men or people or others. But there's no specific subject. 
If you wanted to be more literal, it'd just be, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you. Who's the they? The Greek leaves the subject unspecified. And in the subsequent context of Matthew's sermon, it seems clear that those who oppose the message and example of Yeshua are clearly in view. That is, the synagogue officials who would eventually exclude the followers of Yeshua. Who else would have made the accusation that Yeshua was intent upon destroying the Torah and the prophets? When Yeshua says, don't let anybody tell you that I came to destroy the Torah and the prophets, who would have accused him of that? It certainly wasn't the Gentiles who would have accused him of that. It wasn't his own followers who would have accused him of that. But it would have been the leaders, perhaps of the Sanhedrin, who were not real hot on his teaching. So while the persecution here described could be envisioned in a general sense, it most likely has the already growing animosity against Yeshua as its primary reference. The hostility against Yeshua's disciples is noted to consist of insults, persecutions, and slander. Insults would include the stinging jokes and innuendos and even public humiliation, something strictly forbidden by the sages. Persecution might include power of the court, which would find them guilty of blasphemy or improper associations, especially with Gentiles. And this might dovetail with, say, all manner of evil against you falsely. This final clause might well envision the false witnesses that were marshaled into courts to condemn the disciples on false charges. Interestingly, if our understanding of this final beatitude is on track, the persecution at the hands of Paul before his coming to faith in Yeshua may be seen as a partial fulfillment of Yeshua's words. How, did, how in the world did Paul put believers in prison? And even apparently, by, if we look at the words, maybe even have them executed. How did, it, how did he do that? What was the charges? They had to be trumped up. The only way that they could have, they could have uh, gotten capital punishment against some of the believers of Yeshua was either they trumped up treason against Rome, which is possible, because Yeshua may have been, that may have been his crime, okay? And so the followers were then viewed as those who were insurrectionists against, against Rome. So, but you would, have, you would have had to have false witnesses to corroborate that, who say all manner of evil against you falsely. This final beatitude contains the only imperatives of, the, of all the Beatitudes. There's no commands in any of the rest, but here we have two. Rejoice and be glad. Now go figure that. The one that says you're going to be persecuted has the commands, rejoice and be glad. Both of these imperatives are present tense, which could be understood to mean keep on rejoicing and being glad. Don't ever stop in the wake of persecution. Moreover, the rejoicing and gladness is not in spite of the persecution, but because of it. The persecution that comes upon Yeshua's disciples links them with the prophets of old who also were persecuted in the same way, which is exactly what the Greek word means. Thus, the prophets of old were persecuted because they were the genuine spokesmen of God. In the same way, Yeshua's disciples are the authoritative witnesses of the Messiah and their persecution at the hands of his enemies is proof of this. Some have suggested that the concept of rejoicing and suffering is, pure, is a purely Christian teaching without parallel in the rabbis, but note this, this breta. By the way, a breta is an anonymous saying that is definitely old as a result. In other words, they've forgotten exactly who said it, but it's so well known that they simply introduce it by saying, our rabbis taught. Our rabbis taught those who are insulted but do not insult, hear themselves reviled without answering, act through love and rejoice in suffering. Of them the scriptures say, but they who love him are as the sun when he goes forth in his might. So there we have rejoice in suffering, at least in one of the rabbis of the 3rd century, or earlier, 2nd century perhaps, since it's a great time. Neither the words of the rabbis nor those of our master extol suffering in and of itself. 
Yeshua taught himself taught his disciples to pray, deliver us from evil. But the rejoicing and suffering comes from recognizing that when we suffer for the righteous name of our master, we may count on his blessing not because we have suffered, but because we have stood steadfast in the truth and acted faithfully with it. In other words, we suffer in the same way that the prophets suffered. However, I think this blessing is specifically to the twelve. I think he was saying, you are going to fulfill a role in this time which was filled, uh, fulfilled previously by prophets. The blessing that is promised is that your reward in heaven is great. Many have understood this to be an eschatological blessing, that is, something that awaits the final redemption. Surely there is a sense that our hope is cast upon the final redemption and the shalom of the world to come. By the way, I don't agree with the rabbis who say in the world to come we're not going to eat. No, come on, we have to eat. What fun would that be? Yeah, we're going to all sit down at table with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, absolutely. But, but our reward in heaven may just as well emphasize that God himself is fully aware of our suffering and its cause, and he has set himself to reward us as we are faithful. In other words, our reward is in heaven, meaning it comes from heaven. It has its source in heaven. This in itself brings consolation in the midst of suffering. Moreover, the whole blessing is cast in the mode of God's providence. Thus, when the disciples of Yeshua suffer because they carry his message and live in accordance with his words and example, they may be assured that their suffering is neither new, nor accidental, nor absurd. Persecution against the disciples is like the persecution of the prophets of old, so it's not new. Yeshua foretold it, so it is not accidental. And it was and is used by the Almighty to expand his kingdom and to bring about his desired purposes. So it is not absurd. That is, it is not without meaning. It is fully with meaning. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.